was many years ago when I was in uh, school, my science teacher started a lesson on evolution by uh, mocking the creation story. And she got to a, she was doing that with every faith, every belief. And then she gets to the narrative in the Bible. And uh, she added, it seems like God was so tired after six days of creation that he had to rest. And something in me, I, I, I just couldn't, you know, it was like, I, I can't keep quiet. I need to say something. And I wasn't concerned about consequences at that point. But what, what kept me silent that day was uh, I didn't know how to respond. I didn't know how to answer. I didn't know what to do. There was, it was a mixed feeling of anger that she would say that. And there was also the sadness in my heart of, of, of a soul that doesn't seem to have understood God's creation and about God. And, and there's, there's much that I can say to her now. As I look back, there is, you know, I would say to her, you see, when, when it says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, he's talking about the beginning of time, the space and the matter. I, I, I want to tell her that, you know, from Psalm 33, 6, which says, by the word of the Lord it was, the, was the heavens made, and by the breath of his mouth were the host thereof. I want to tell him that it was just his word that made the heavens, the the technology that we have is not able to see the one end to the other end. They believe it is 14.5 billion light years across, but, the, but they even estimate it to be 90 or 90 billion light years. That is, if light traveling at that speed would take 90 billion light years to go from one end to the other end. I, I wanted to tell her all that, and I wanted to tell her that, you see, what you read is what he started to do on Earth. What he did on earth over six days is, was nothing really compared to this, with his breath that he made those heavens. And so really what he did is he was making time for humankind. He was trying to say that there is a schedule in which my purposes will be fulfilled. I want, her to tell, I want to tell her that you know, God made time for man and woman. And that's what you read in Genesis 1. The beginning of time. There is this structure. There is this, there is this uh, schedule that is laid out. And as you go through Genesis, you read the fall and then the redemption and then the whole story. You see that God makes time for man again. And in this, it talks about grace. If the first talks about schedule, it talks about the fact that there was time that was created for mankind. God continues to make time for man. And that uh, if we don't understand the grand story of the Bible, we might trip ourselves in these questions. And, and, and we've been looking at the psalm, Psalm 119. We said that this is a psalm that keeps reminding us about God's word. And today, as we look at this passage, it, it's going to speak to us about two things. One is God has made time for men and women. God has made time for us. And the challenge, therefore, is will we make time for God? God making time. That he says from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, that he makes all things beautiful in his time. And, 
And we got to remember the Lord this morning. And so you will see as we go through this passage, the things that God has done in this remembrance. And um, the passage before us is Psalm 119, verses 49 to, uh, to 64. And it's two passages, as you will see, is the seventh and the eighth stanza. The seventh stanza reminds us of the remembrance, like what is it that God has done for us? That's the reminder. Then we get to the eighth stanza, it's a challenge on how we respond. And so as we go through, that is what we will look. But let me just pray before we start. Father, we have come to, uh, to hear you speak. Lord, may it not be my words, my uh, Lord, would you hide me behind the cross? Speak to us, Lord. We are so desperate to hear you speak to us, to our hearts and to our lives, Lord, that it would give us life even as your word says it does. And so, Lord, be glorified in the hearing of your word that we would not just be hearers but also doers of your word. We thank you again, thank you again, thank you again because you answer this prayer in the name of your son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So before I get to this uh, passage, I want to do six uh, quick recap so that, you know, we are together on this. First, we said the Psalm 119, the longest chapter, if you would. Psalms are not divided into chapter. This is a psalm. But if you were to say the longest psalm in the Word of God is about the Word of God. So the Word of God is about the Word of God, and that's what one thing we need to say. We said if you, if you accept it, if you believe it, there is life, but if you reject it, there is death, there is destruction. And we also saw last week, we saw that God's Word uses eight synonyms for His Word. That's because of the bandwidth, you know, the, the broad range. The language is so limited. It's not able to tell us entirely what God's Word is all about. It uses eight different words to give us this kaleidoscope, as it were, a, a picture of what God's word is about. And then we had previously seen that it's an acrostic poem. An acrostic poem is you, you take the first letters and you start to write a poem. And Psalm 119 is a Hebrew poem. There are 22 letters in Hebrew, and there are eight stanzas in each of those letters. 22 times 8 is 176. So each of those stanzas begin with that letter. So we are on the 7th and the 8th, which would mean the 7th and the 8th uh, letters of Hebrew. And uh, the, another thing you need to know about it, that, that these letters actually set the tone for that stanza. And in doing that, this is, a, this is to aid in memory, that is one way, but also this letter sets a tone. And what that means is when you look at the 7th stanza, the word there is zain, the Hebrew word, and it it's asking us to remember. When you start reading that passage, you will see that there is this frequent reminder, remember, remember, okay? So that's one thing that you will see. And when you get to the eighth stanza, it talks about the, the, the tone on that is about life and holiness, and we will see how David says, I want to live this holy life. I want to prioritize my life in such a way that I can live this life. Okay, so that's, the, that's what's happening in these two passages as we begin to see uh, this, uh, what we have in front of us. But uh, one other thing that I want us to know is that 
the circumstances and challenges that the psalmist is going through is reflected in the psalm. That is, he lives in a culture which is opposed to that of the Bible. And so he is angry sometimes. He's sad. He is, he is like provoked. Uh, you get those emotions as we read this psalm. Now I would say uh, our situation is not very different, right? Like we live in a time where, um, where, uh, where there is a challenge to God's word. I want to tell you from this book called The Good Faith. It's a book written by Barna Group, and the tagline of that book is being a Christian when society thinks you're irrelevant and extreme. Now listen to the statistics. It says two out of five adults believe that it's, an ex- that it's extremist to try to convert others to faith. That is, 40% believe that if you try and convert someone else to your faith, that you've been an extremist. 69% of all adults in America and 83% of atheists believe that evangelism, which is one of the tenets of Christianity, that if you engage in evangelism, that you've been an extremist. And a slim majority, that is just a little over 50%, believe that same-sex relationship, that if you believe that same-sex relationship is morally wrong, you're being an extremist. The two out of five adults believe that it's extreme to quit a good-paying job to pursue a mission job, uh, mission work overseas. So you quit your job and you go on missions, you've been an extremist. 40% believe that. So keeping that in mind, would you turn to the seventh stanza, which is Psalm 49. And I want you to think of this as gratefully remembering, gratefully remembering this, I said, this, this phrase of remembrance that keeps coming back again and again. And I want to give you three reminders, the three reminders that come out from here. First is that we have confidence in God's character. We have confidence in God's character. Verse 49 says, remember your word to your servant. Now, I want you to understand when when the psalmist is saying this, God is not forgotten. God is not like, you know, okay, thank you for reminding me. This is not because of God's forgetfulness, but it's a plea. It's 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 a prayer. Lord, would you fulfill these promises to us? That's his prayer. It's the language of prayer. And he says there that your word which has given me hope. You see, I know you're a God who keeps your word. You say it and you do it. And so therefore I have this hope. So would you fulfill it, Lord? It gives me comfort, verse 50. Gives me comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. What you said is true. Your word gives me this comfort, this, this, this promise that you will keep me through the storm. You will get me to the other side. I asked this, uh, I was asking this question. It's like, how do I, how do I you know, apply this? I like, oh, we know God's promises are being said to us. And yet we start to doubt. And yet we start to say, like, how is it that I, I can apply? I don't, I don't know how many of you. How many of you ever pray, Lord, do not send a global flood that destroys the whole earth? Would you ever pray that? Would you pray? Would you pray? Would, would, would you say, now we, we've been hearing about floods in different parts of the world. Would you say, Lord, please do not send this global flood that 
during the times of Noah that you sent so that you would, that would destroy the whole earth. Have you prayed that? No, why not? Because God has said he will not. And you take him for his word. You know that's his character. His character that we have confidence in. That what he says he does. His word is good enough. So when you read God's word, it, it gives me that encouragement. This confidence. That gives me hope. Gives me comfort. But come with me to 51 to 53, which says we have conviction in God's commands. We have conviction in God's command. It says the arrogant, they mock me unmercifully. You see, they, they say they, they make fun of my hope. So you really, you believe in God in this time. Is that what you do? Like, really, God's going to answer you. They mock me, the psalmist says. But I'm convinced about your word. I will not turn away from your word. Your word against their word. I can always trust your word, O oh God. It's the hope that I have. And then I know that you keep your word. Verse 53. Sorry, verse 52. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O oh Lord. This, we, we don't know who the psalmist is. Most scholars believe it to be David. And let's say it as David. He wrote this about 3,000 years ago. And 3,000 years ago, he says, your rules from of old, I take comfort. So you need to go even past that. And what, what the psalmist is telling us is that those rules, those laws, those commands, those promises that were laid out from that long have not changed. I can still trust in that. God's word doesn't change. And so I take comfort, O oh Lord. You're not a whimsical God. Your character is steadfast. And your commandment I can have confidence in. Verse 53, it says, Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked. You see, the psalmist is so focused on God's honor rather than his own pain. It's about God's honor. When somebody disses God, there is, it provokes in me an emotion. I, I, I can see what God has done for me and who God is. And, and how can I not, not have, how can I be indifferent? How can I be apathetic? Listen to this. Our sins have flourished because we have taken great lengths to protect our own honor. Instead of protecting, instead of getting riled up about God's honor, we are more about our own honor, and we, we just kind of then hide our sins. May we be like the psalmist who will insist on God's honor rather than caring for our own shame. God's word. It's always been the target of the devil, hasn't, hasn't it been? I was thinking about it, you know, I was reading some news and we were talking about false news. You know where false news began? In the Garden of Eden. Really, he said that? Was the devil's word. Did God really say that? Doesn't, 
Isn't, isn't that still strong? Isn't that the same thing that he says even now to us? Did God really say he's going to comfort you? Did God really say he loves you? Did God really says, uh, say that he forgave you? Really? After all that you did? God's word. They seek to discredit. And the psalmist says, I have this hot indignation. But look at that emotion. In verse 53, he has this emotion which provokes, he's provoked because when God's word is being uh, vilified, or being, being held in dishonor. Then we get to verse 44, uh, sorry, 54. Uh, there is, there is uh, it tells us, but there is comfort in God's communion. There's comfort in God's communion. You see, in 54, it says, your statutes have been my song in the house of my sojourning. There is this emotion, yes. You said, when I see what the wicked do, I have this emotion of this, of like, how can they do it? I get, I get worked up. And the same psalmist is saying, but when I come to your word, it gives me a song. I'm able to put music to the song. I'm able to sing God's word. It gives me that joy, this excitement. There is, it is not just a cold, ritualistic process. You see, our faith is not something we just checklist it off and says, all right, I've done this, 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 and so I'm good. No, that is not what it is. There is, there is this passion that comes in. There's this emotion that comes in. It's not just my mind, this rationale, but also my heart, my whole being. That's why we are told to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, with all your might, every part of it, so beautifully Cohest. And that's what God's word does. That's what God's word does. Verse 55. I remember your name in the night, O Lord. I keep your law. You see, when others wake up in the night and they, they stay awake because of the worries, I'm able to meditate on your word. When you wake up in the middle of the night because you're concerned with things, Turn to God's word. There are people who try to count sheep to fall asleep. You have the privilege to talk to the shepherd. God's word gives me comfort. I don't know if you know the story, but um, this is the story of Birbal. And uh, this Persian king who was ruling, and Akbar, and uh, Birbal was the... um, the court advisor. And there came a time when uh, this man came up, came to the court, and he, was, uh, he could speak many languages fluently to such an extent nobody knew his first language or his mother tongue or his heart language. And so he challenged the court, and he says, if you can find out my first language, then you, know, you guys win. And obviously that's a challenge to the court. And what Birbal did is, while this man was asleep, he, cold, he poured cold water on him, and he got up, and he, whatever his first language was, and that's what he exclaimed in. Now, that's, that's a, you know, whether it's true or not, but it just reminds us one thing, right? 
What is our heart language? What is the first thing that comes out of our mouth when we are, when we are shocked, when we are in a spot, when we are, when we are, um, you know, shaken out of our emotional stability? The psalmist is saying it's God's word. He's understood what it means that this word gives him that stability. That's his heart language. He's the one, God's the one he talks to. God's the one he talks about. He's filled his life with the word of God. And so verse 56, it says, this blessing has fallen to me and I have kept your precepts. I've made your word mine. These words are my words, as in I have owned them. I have personalized them. And another translation says, it has been my practice. I've shared this with you. I find it very difficult to memorize verses or memorize anything for, for, for that matter. But I was challenged once. How many of you know John 3.16? Right? You all know. Okay. Right? Why is it that we know John 3.16? Why is it that we can memorize God's word, John 3.16, and yet we give ourselves excuses for other things? You see, because John 3.16 has become familiar with us, we have kind of owned it. We have, we have made that our practice, and we can do that with the rest of God's word. Now, the Spirit of God is going to help us so that we can, we can hide his word in our heart that we may not sin against him. May that be true. And the psalmist says, the blessing has fallen to me. So the psalmist reminds us about the confidence in God's character, the conviction in God's commandment, and the comfort that I have in God's communion. That brings us then to the next stanza, because now the psalmist is saying, this, these are the things I remember. These are the things that I'm reminded of when I read God's word. But then that means I need, there is this prompting, there's a response that's expected of me. Like, what is it that, like, what would cause us to respond to what God means to us? And the psalmist is saying, these are amazing things, and I'm going to respond. So we get to the eighth stanza, the eighth stanza that talks about the life and the holiness or the conscious priorities that the psalmist puts out. In verse 57 to 58, I want you to look at the first one. The Lord will be preeminent in my life. The Lord is my portion. He'll be my, he'll be my choice. He, the, he is the one who I will choose. You see, this word portion has got this connotation of the land being divided to the nation of Israel. And so they, they would say, this land, oh, yeah, that's a great land. And, you know, I mean, thank you, I got this, and I've got a good portion. But, you know, with the Levites, right? The Levites didn't get any land. They got cities to dwell in and a little bit of land. And uh, I just, I'm just making this um, situation or the scenario in my head. And it might have happened, thinking, uh, seeing how the children of Israel responded. So in... In the time in Joshua 18 is when these 
portions of land has been given out, and so all these Levites have gone in, and, and then they come back home, and so the wife asks them, the family asks them, okay, so where did we get the portion? Where's the land? And he says, no, 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 we didn't get any land. We got the Lord as our portion. And, and I don't know, the kid or the wife or whoever said, what? We, we, we didn't get land? We came to our promised land and we didn't get land? You see, during the, whole, during the wilderness journey, we had to set up the tabernacle. We had to serve in the tabernacle. We had to set it, pull it down, and then we had to carry it while all the other tribes they didn't have to do anything. And you, you say more work, and that is our portion in this uh, promised land? Look at this Eliezer, or whatever that name is, the person. He, he, he just lies there with his mouth open so the manna can go right in. He doesn't even have to work. Now, that's debatable. You don't have to do that because manna has to be pounded up and cooked and all that. But, you know, when you want to prove a point, you exaggerate, right? The Lord is my portion. How often, like in the uh, weight of glory, C.S. Lewis says it well, he who has the Lord has, has it all. We've asked and prayed, Lord, I can't talk to somebody because I don't have words. I, I, I'm not able. I can't do this. I, I can't do that. I give these examples. And, but when you say, I have the Lord, I have what he has, isn't that enough? The Lord is my portion. So the psalmist, if he was David, he's the one who says, I, I mean, that's great that you made me the king, but I'd rather be a doorkeeper at the tabernacle. He, he, he knows the priority, the, what is most important. The Lord is my portion. 59 to 60 says, I will hurry to obey the word of the Lord. Verse 60, I hasten, I do not delay to keep your commandments. I'll get up and I'll run. The moment I know I'm off by anything, I'll, I'll return back. I, I don't want to linger. I want to just get up and come running back to you, O oh God. Your word would tell me that because in 59 he says, you know, why does he hurry? Because the psalmist realizes that there is this flesh in him always trying to trip him. And in 59, it says, when I think of my ways, when I think of my ways, I, 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 I turn my feet to your testimony. There is this priority that I do. I move. I, I need to act. I love Second Timothy 2.22, which says, which says, flee youthful lust. You need to get up and run. You need to get up and run. So the psalmist says, I will not delay. But then 61 to 62, it says, I will ensure that I'll be pulled towards God's word. You see, though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. There is a pull. There is a pull that the world has. It is trying to get me, trying to pull me towards, towards itself. There is this tug of war that is going on for, for the affections of my heart. Like I've got one heart and, and there is this, there's this fight as to who's going to get it, and I'm going to make sure that the pull is towards God. I, I, I don't want to go be ensnared by the wicked. Second Timothy 2.22, it says, Flee youthful lust, but follow righteousness, faith, 
charity and peace. You see, not just I run from, but I have to run to. Because if I just get up and run, I don't know where I'm running to. I need to know where I'm running to. God's word says, run to him. The psalmist says, I'll, that's what I'll do. Even though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. And at midnight, I'll rise to praise you because of your righteous laws. That's the practice that the psalmist has. Because he, he, he keeps God's word close to him in his lips. It's always there in his lips, in his mind, in his heart that he's able to run away from lust and sin and wickedness and evil towards righteousness and faith and peace and charity. But then listen to what we have in verse 63. It says, I will keep godly friends. I'm a companion to all who fear you and and those who keep your precepts. First Corinthians fifteen thirty three says, you know, God's word is very clear about it. It says, don't be mocked. Don't be mocked. Bad company corrupts good character. And so the psalmist prioritizes his friendship. He's saying one of the reasons why we come together is so that we can encourage and strengthen and embolden each other to walk that walk. Because 2 Timothy 2.22 says this. It says, flee youthful lust. You need to flee away from this youthful lust. And you have to flee towards righteousness and faith and charity and peace. But it goes on to say, but flee with them who call on the Lord with a pure heart. There's not just a flee from and a flee to, but there's also a flee with. That's God's word. And so the psalmist says, I'm a companion to all who fear you and to those who keep your precepts. And so the psalm ends with a prayer and a praise. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. And teach me your statutes. I want more. Listen to this. Your word, O Lord, reminds me of wonderful things concerning you. And it's given me a spiritual appetite for more. So, O Lord, teach me more. We heard what the, we heard what the psalmist is saying. He reminds himself from God's word. And he said, these are the things that I'm going to do. I came across this article by Chuck Lawless. Speaks about um, 10 signs as to where your heart is. I think it would be a good check for us as we apply what God's word has just said to us. First, it says your attention to spiritual disciplines is waning, if not non-existent. Your Bible study, your study of the word does not encourage you. Prayer has become a chore. And you approach uh, to hearing God's word is, um, is lax. Your enthusiasm for attending church is losing steam. You still go, but the joy and the expectation is gone. The others might recognize it, but gathering with the people of God has become a real challenge to you. 
Third one, it's been months, if not years, since you've talked to somebody about your relationship with Jesus. Because there's nothing exciting happening in your spiritual walk and you've, you've decided there's nothing to talk about. The fourth one, old sin battles have returned. This battle for victory has become difficult or almost impossible. Fifth one, you're hiding stuff. To save yourself in embarrassment and shame, you keep it all to yourself. Folks who know you best have begun to ask, what's up? Like, what's happening? The words are honest and loving, but they sting you. You're likely to blatantly lie or respond defensively. Seventh one, singing God's praises in church is harder to do. How can you sing when your heart's not right? You tolerate sin more in your own life. It's easier to point it out in someone else, but we make justification and excuses for our own. See, when the heart grows hardened, arrows of conviction sometimes bounce off. Ninth one, you make excuses to avoid any level of accountability. You don't hang around as much with friends and who've never, who, who never hesitated to speak to you about your spiritual walk. You look for friends who won't hold you accountable. The tenth one, you get defensive when reading this post. I mean, I said to you, this is an article. I'm just reading it. And he says, it's not my goal to heap guilt on anyone, but you probably need some honest look at yourself if your first reaction to this post is defensiveness and rationalization. Now I pray to God that having taken time to read God's word, that reminds us as to what God has done for us, that our response is not weak and, and indifferent and apathetic. We have reminded ourselves last week that if this is the word of the king, then he must be king in our lives. He must be Lord in our lives. He won't have it anyway. We were reminded today, he will be Lord irrespective of whether you accept him or not. But you lose the privilege, the blessing, the joy. And I pray that um, that would not be true of us. We have said that God's word, which gives me comfort, gives me hope, gives me joy, holds me steady in a storm. If that is his word and he keeps it, that's the word I want for my life. May he be glorified. Father, we thank you for all that you've been to us. We thank you for your word. We recognize, Lord, that Lord, that many times, even though with our best effort as we try, we have failed. And we forget to recognize, Lord, that it's not our power, it's your power, as, this, as Paul says in Colossians, that we are able to labor. But we pray that we will be those who will persevere, who will persist, who will stay faithful. And we pray, Lord, that those of us, as we face our storms, as we face challenges and and trying times that your word that said will give us that stability, that your word that shows us that you are the ones through from whom we'll get our comfort, our hope, 
our, our ability to go through the storm. We pray. We pray, Lord, that that would be real and, and felt, Lord, because we have sought your face entirely. We, have, we drop all our rationalization. We drop all that, that stands against you. We give up all our sins that we have done, Lord, very consistently and, and, and oftentimes blatantly. And this, uh, we pray, Father, that our hearts would be turned towards you and that your word would be true in our lives because we want it no other way. There's no cost, Lord, that we would be willing to pay. For a God who made time for us, we want to say that we will make time, we will give our lives itself so that he is glorified in our lives. We thank you, we love you. Thank you for answering our prayers because we offer it in the name of your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen.